Hey Westside family, my name is Eric Johnson and I serve on the production team. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. We hope you are blessed by what God has been speaking to us through our pastors and leaders, and we pray this leads you into an even more intimate relationship with Jesus. Love you guys and enjoy. So we're going to start uh, a series on the temple. I wasn't really for sure where I was going to be going tonight, uh, coming to the church this morning and just kind of a bit lost. Sometimes I have a direction, sometimes I don't. And I didn't have a direction today. And going through my typical process, uh, thank you, going through my typical process, uh, considering what we had been talking about, the priesthood, it just seemed, it, it, it seemed like the right direction to go to talk about the temple uh, because priests operate within temple uh, function and parameters and, and uh, things like that. So I began to jump into the temple and I have to say I got lost today. I had a couple other things I was involved in, but most of the day was focused on uh, the message, and I honestly didn't finish my finish preparing this uh, until about 10 minutes before church time tonight. I was really late getting Jake my slides and, and, and what I have going on. I'm excited about this. As I was preparing for this today, I have to say I, I, I have already begun to feel uh, the presence of the Lord, and I feel it as I speak. Uh, and so I don't know how long this series is going to be, but whenever you start talking about the temple, you are talking about something extremely important when it comes to biblical uh, topics. The temple was the place where God resided. And you cannot separate the temple from God. You can't separate the temple from his presence. You can't separate the temple from his people. And watch what you typically have in discussing the temple is those three things in union. You have God, you have his presence, and you have his people. And that's one thing I love about the temple. And I love studying about it and talking about it because it begins and it ends with God, his presence, and his people. And if there's one thing I'm hoping for in uh, the talk or the teaching of this is not just a sense, but an experience and a feeling of God's presence. Uh, It's, yeah. So let's get started with it, shall we? So the temple in the Bible was extremely significant uh, to God's people. It was the place to where God's people, uh, where God allowed his, his presence uh, uh, to be on the earth. It, it, it was a place to where uh, God's servants, the priests, offered up sacrifices and offerings for his people so that his people can be atoned and redeemed. So it's very significant 
a very big deal uh, when it comes to a God and his people. And to be uh, honest, that has not changed today. It is still significant today for us. Even though we don't worship like they worship, and even though we don't have the type of building uh, that they did, it is still extremely significant. Every part of the temple, you cannot exclude any part of the temple. Every single part of the temple has meanings for us today. They speak of God. They speak of God's attributes. They speak it what God has blessed us and given us. They speak of how we should live, what we should do, because in the New Testament, the Bible does say that you and I are the temples of the Holy Ghost. And so be, just because of that factor right there, we are the temples of the Holy Ghost, right there creates a very important factor for us. And it should create a sensitivity in our minds and in our hearts regarding the temple in the Bible because the temple is where God manifested his presence and we are the temple today and because we are the temple today we should be the domain in which God manifest his presence but in order for God to manifest his presence in the temple of the old testament there were certain processes and certain operations that had to be done by the priest or the glory would not manifest or God would not do certain things. And it is parallel to us today. There are certain processes and certain operations that we must fulfill in our life in order for the glory of God, the Shekinah glory as it is labeled in the Old Testament to manifest in our life. So as you can see, in the Old Testament, it was extremely significant because the temple, in all reality, was the bridge between God and his people. We, the temple, what's inside of us, what is going on in us, is the bridge between us and God. Does that make sense? So what went on in the Old Testament was the bridge or not to God. What goes on inside our temple is the bridge or not to God. So I have about a 10 minute video. I know it's a long video, but it's a great video that just kind of gives us an overview gives us an overview of Solomon's temple, but it also gives us a bit of information about Moses' tabernacle. So let's watch this video, uh, and then I'll pick back up. Solomon's temple stood in Jerusalem for almost 400 years. It was the crown jewel of Jerusalem and the center of worship to the Lord. 
Almost half of the Old Testament writings took place during the time when Solomon's temple was still standing. Understanding the significance of its location, history, and design can greatly add to one's reverence for one of the most holy places in the world. The city of Jerusalem is located in an area of three major valleys, the Hinnom, the Central or Tyropian, and the Kidron Valley. The mountain range between the Central and Kidron Valley is called Mount Moriah. The peak of the mountain is a large protruding flat rock, which is now located under the Dome of the Rock. According to Genesis 22:2, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac in the region of Moriah, connecting the Temple Mount with this significant event. At the time of King David, the area of Jerusalem was controlled by the Jebusites, the city only occupying the southern part of the central ridge. When David captured the city in about 1000 BC, he made Jerusalem his capital. David then moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and began preparations for building a permanent structure to replace the portable tabernacle of Moses that had been used for over 400 years. With the ancient city of Jerusalem being fairly small, David purchased the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite so he could expand the size of the city. Being higher than the city of David, the hilltop would make a beautiful place to build the temple of the Lord. Under the reign of David's son, King Solomon, the temple construction began. After seven years of construction in about 960 BC, Solomon finished building the temple, most likely built over the same protruding rock of Mount Moriah. Solomon also built himself a new palace just south of the temple and expanded the walls of the city up towards the peak of Mount Moriah. The Temple of Solomon was modeled after the Tabernacle of Moses. Because of the many similarities between the Tabernacle and the Garden of Eden, many scholars believe that the Garden of Eden was the prototype for the Tabernacle, and thus later temples. According to Jewish tradition, Eden was located on a hill, with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the center of the hill. The Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve transgressed and partook of the forbidden fruit, they were cast out towards the east. Cherubim and a flaming sword were then placed at the east entrance to prevent them from partaking of the tree of life, as they would then live forever in their sin. In order to return back into the presence of God, Israel had to symbolically retrace the steps of Adam and Eve, passing the cherubim and re-entering the garden in a westward direction. The tabernacle was set up in the same east-to-west progression, seeming to replicate the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was divided into three main courts, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The outer court represented the fallen world, while the inner courts represented a more sacred and holier way of life. In essence, as the priest, who represented all of Israel, progressed through the tabernacle, or temple, he left the world to enter a more holy state, and then was enabled to re-enter the presence of the Lord, passing the angels, or cherubim, who were embroidered on the veil. Solomon's temple replicated this same three-level progression, doubling the floor plan size of the tabernacle sanctuary for the temple structure. 
As one approached the Temple of Solomon, the first thing noticed was the brazen altar of sacrifice. The altar was 20 cubits long and wide and 10 cubits high, a cubit being the length from the elbow to the tip of the longest finger, or about one and a half feet. On the four corners of the altar were four horns, horns often representing power. This is where the sacrificial animals were burned, representing the future sacrifice of the Savior Jesus Christ. On the southeast side of the temple was the molten or brazen sea, which rested on the backs of twelve oxen, three pointing in each of the cardinal directions. In ancient times, oxen represented strength, and the number twelve often represented the twelve tribes of Israel. Water from the larger brazen sea was poured into ten bronze water basins on both sides of the temple, which could then be wheeled around the outer court for various washing and cleansing rituals by the priests. Around the south, west, and north sides of the temple were three floors of chambers or storage rooms. The inside wall of the chambers was stepped so as to create a ledge where the timbers of the floors could rest. The storage rooms were accessed by a door on the south side of the temple, with wooden ladders going up into each of the floors. At the front of the temple were two large bronze pillars that flanked the porch. The pillar on the left was named Boaz, and the pillar on the right was named Joachim. The tops were decorated with lily flower petals and pomegranates. Pomegranates were a sign of prosperity and posterity because of their many seeds, and were also found on the bottom hem of the clothing of the high priest. The main temple doors were made of two large bifolding doors covered in gold with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. The Bible describes the doorframe as being a fourth part of the wall, which most scholars believe means that the door had four stepped frames. The interior doorway of the Holy of Holies was similar, except having five frames instead of four. The priests who represented Israel were the only ones allowed into the inner temple. This means that Israel only could enter through being represented by the priests. Once you entered the main doors, you entered the holy place, a large room 40 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. The room was overlaid with gold and decorated with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, possibly alluding to the beauty of the Garden of Eden. The room was lit by ten large menorahs, five on each side of the room, that were constantly burning, and narrow windows on each side of the top of the room. On the right side of the room was located the table of showbread, which had twelve large flat pita-like loaves. The priests ate and then replaced the showbread every Sabbath, similar to our weekly partaking of the communion or sacramental bread. Breaking bread and sharing a meal with someone in ancient times represented that you were at peace with them and was a sign of brotherhood, love, and forgiveness. Directly in front of the Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. The altar was similar to the altar of sacrifice in that it had a square footprint and also had four horns, one on each of the corners. However, on the altar of sacrifice was burned the flesh of animals, while upon the altar of incense burned a sweet combination of incenses. The incense burning before the veil of the temple represented the prayers of the saints ascending to God before the veil, a reminder that before we can enter God's presence, our lives, 
prayers, and actions must become a sweet savor unto the Lord. Only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies, and only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, before entering, the high priest passed through a beautifully embroidered veil woven from purple, red, blue, and white threads. The colors were the same as used in the ephod and breastplate of the clothing of the high priest, minus the gold thread. Embroidered on the veil were cherubim, who symbolically guarded the dwelling place of God. As the high priest passed through the veil, he had to pass these angels, who, like in the Garden of Eden, guarded the way back to the presence of the Lord. Upon entering the Holy of Holies, you would find that the room is in the shape of a perfect cube, being twenty cubits wide, long, and tall. The walls were likewise overlaid with gold and decorated with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Two large cherubim flanked the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the center of the room, with their wings stretching from one side of the room to the other. This room is where the presence of the Lord would dwell, and represented the final goal and destiny of all Israel. Solomon's temple was not only a landmark for the city of Jerusalem, but more importantly, the dwelling place of the Lord. The layout represented Israel's progression back into God's presence and was designed to teach Israel that it was only through the infinite sacrifice of the sinless Messiah that they could once again enjoy the presence of the Lord. A sacrifice, that would be performed on a cross only a short distance from this holy mountain. So some good stuff there, right? Uh, a nice, a very nice foundation. So we're going to start with, well, today, uh, tonight, we're going to basically kind of just jump into uh, the, the, the two tabernacles and the two temples of Israel. We're, uh, next week, we'll, we'll get inside the temple and start looking at some of the, uh, uh, the furnishings that was in the temple. But we need to really see where the temple come from. And so that's what we're going to do. So basically, in Israel's history, Israel had two tabernacles and Israel had two temples. So the first tabernacle was what is considered the tabernacle of Moses. Uh, it's in that, the left corner, left top corner picture. Uh, there is basically a rendition of a, the tabernacle of Moses. So in Exodus uh, chapter 25, verse 8 through 9, it reads, And let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell, dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you. As the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall construct. Now, what's interesting is this uh, was a mobile tent uh, that God told Moses to construct that was to go with Israel uh, throughout the wilderness. And it represented that God was with them. And it was the place that God manifested his Shekinah glory in as they went through the wilderness. And so it was, it was mo mobile. Uh, it was able to be moved from point A uh, to point B. An interesting thought for me is, so Israel was removed from Egypt and was destined to go 
uh, to the promised land. But before God allowed Israel to go into the promised land, what he wanted to establish in them was a tabernacle that was going to become a temple. In other words, before he sent them to all the promises of the land flowing with milk and honey, he wanted them to establish a place that would house his presence because God's presence is always priority in our life. Before blessings, before promises, before the good of the land, what's important to remember is God's presence is always priority. And if we ever find ourselves seeking the good of the land and we consider that to be more important than the presence of God, then we got our priorities, we got our mindsets, and we got our faith all mixed up. That God comes first. That's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all all your strength or your mind. And so I find that find that to be uh, interesting here uh, that the, one of the first things that God was establishing, establishing with Israel was, uh, was worship, was a place that he would dwell. Another interesting point is the stuff that they received from Egypt. So Israel basically requested certain things from Egypt before they left Egypt, gold, silver, bronze, you know, things like this. And the things that they received from Egypt is the things that God used in their life to build a, a, a dwelling place for his presence. And what that says to us is that, so in our Egypt, so our Egypt is the place without God in our lives. And that there's things that we develop, there's things that we receive, there's things that, that we end up you know, possessing out of Egypt. But the things we go through in Egypt so oftentimes is the things that we use in our life to worship God with. Amen? Because we're overcomers by the word of our testimony, right? So that's the first uh, tabernacle. It's the tabernacle uh, of Moses. So this, as as you saw in the video, without me having to break it all down, it laid the foundation for what was going to be inside the temple. So the processes of, of Moses's, of what went on in Moses' tabernacle was the same processes that was going to be going on uh, in Solomon's temple or the temple when it was constructed. Now what's uh, another interesting thing is that there was another little tabernacle. It wasn't called a tabernacle per se. It was really called a tent is the tent or the tabernacle of David that developed in between Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple. And it only developed out of necessity. It was not originally uh, the plan of God. So let me read you a a few scriptures concerning uh, the tabernacle of David or the tent of David. I'm going to read you three because it's, it's, it's listed three times in the Bible. The first one is Isaiah 16, 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So in our reality, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Then we jump over to Amos 9, 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, 
and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And then we jump over to Acts 15, 16. And it says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So there is a lot of significance when it comes to the tent of David and Jesus Christ or the future. Now, the tent of David, like I said a minute ago, was not in God's original plan as far as we know of, but it developed out of necessity because the Philistines uh, captured uh, the ark uh, in, in, in battle with Israel and they removed the ark of the covenant uh, from Moses' tabernacle at that time that was in Shiloh. What's very interesting is the, uh, after that point, the Ark of the Covenant never made it back to the tabernacle of Moses. And it was gone uh, outside of a, of a tent, I want to say for about 110 years. I might be a little bit off there. Uh, but David had it in him to bring the ark to his city, Jerusalem, the city of David. And so in 1 Chronicles 15.1, it says, In the city of David on Mount Zion, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. So what really happened is David went and he, he uh, got the ark of the covenant and he brought it uh, to Mount Zion and he put it in a tent. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't bring any of the other uh, you know, furnishings or furniture of worship that was in the tabernacle of Moses. He left, left them there. In fact, at that point during David's reign, the tent of Moses or the tabernacle of Moses was in Gibeon. But yet the Ark of the Covenant was with David on Mount Zion. David did not perform priestly duties on Mount Zion with the Ark of the Covenant. There was a couple of times, I think two times with David and one time with Solomon before Solomon's temple was erected, that they just on their own will, out of the heart, did a mass sacrifice that was just an offering uh, unto the Lord. But it was not necessarily a part of priestly duties. So the priestly duties took place in the tabernacle of Moses, but the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was, was in the tent of David. Now, for me, and I'm just going to give you my thoughts on this. This, this, this is not, not like, uh, this is just my opinion. So the tent of David actually represents worship through Jesus Christ, right? The tent of Moses represents worship through religion and through tradition. The tent of David represents the worship of the future. The tent of Moses represented worship of the past. Because when you have the tent of David, all it was about was the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. There was, uh, there was no brazen altar. There was no, there, there was, uh, no lavender. There was no, 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 uh, altar of incense. There was not multifaceted rooms. Uh, it was just a tent that housed the presence of God. 
for me, that tent represents us and the presence of the ark, the presence of God represents the spirit of God that is in us. I find that to be connected to the verse that says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the tent of the Holy Spirit that we find on Mount Zion when David was king. Just a little seed for thought there. So now those are the two tabernacles. We have the tabernacle of Moses and we have the tabernacle of David. This is very significant because without the tabernacles, you wouldn't have the temple. So now we move into uh, Solomon's temple. And we first have to look at where it was started because where it was started is extremely significant. So Solomon's temple started in a place where David built an altar to offer sacrifices uh, unto the Lord. It wasn't just started in a place that was pretty. It wasn't just started in a place that was up on a hill and you got to see the hillsides and everything else. No, it was actually started at a specific place that David had bought to uh, construct an altar. Not only that, it was also the site of a threshing floor. I don't have that picture up here. I meant to have a picture of a threshing floor up here. So let me read you uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, verses 22 and 24. Then Araunah said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, are Okay, my thing is messing up. Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arauna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. Now get this part right here. This is so significant. It says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. My God, that is so, so, so significant. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So number one, he bought this, this land and at the height of this land was a threshing floor. A threshing floor, I know some of you know this, but a threshing floor was a place to where wheat was brought in from the field and, it, and the, the, the grain was separated from the chaff. So it was a place to where the spirit and the flesh was separated. Grain represents spirit, represents life, represents truth. The chaff represents flesh, represents struggle, represents what doesn't need to be in our, in our life. So in order for there to be a separation of flesh and spirit, there has to be 
death. There has to be sacrifice. There has to be brokenness. There has to be effort. It is not easy. Up on this threshing floor, an altar was constructed, was built. And this became the foundation for the temple. I find it so interesting that the foundation of the temple, the temple, a place of sacrifice, was already a place of technically sacrifice or separation or for one meaning or symbolizing a place to where the flesh is to be separated, cast away, and then you have the grain, you have the life, you have the bread, you have the truth. Am I making sense? I hope so. In my mind, I am, but out of my lips, I may not be. I'm sorry if I'm not. Another interesting thing is David would not accept this place for free. He said, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Worship always comes with a price. It has to cost us something. You don't have worship if you don't have the separation from the grain and the chaff. You don't have worship without paying a price. Does that make sense? It blows my mind how David said no a freebie. I will not worship my God on land that was just given to me. But I will worship my God on land that I paid for, on land that I sacrificed for, on land that I worked for, on land that I offered something for. Bible says that we're to uh, be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, offering God our flesh, offering God our sins, offering God our will, offering God our praise, the fruit of our lips, offering God our lives, offering God our resources, our tithe, our offering, offering God our gifts, our talents, offering God our hands and our feet and our voices and our minds. True worship isn't singing pretty songs. True worship is coming unto God, offering something. Amen? So looking at Solomon's temple, it was made lavishly. It was to represent God. It was to represent his glory. And it was to represent his love. It was intended to be permanent. God's, God's will was not for the place to where his presence dwelt was going to be just going around through the desert, going around from land to land to land. It was his intention for there to be a place that his presence dwelt and people could come to this place and through the work of a priest experience redemption 
experience blessing, experience connection with their creator. So it was intended to be permanent. But the sad case of the story is Solomon's temple was destroyed. Let me read you 2 Kings 25, 8 and 9. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great house he burned down. So all this glory, all this, you know, lavish uh, temple and everything within it, all the gold and the bronze, the Babylonians actually took what they could plunder. If you read the full context of, of that, they plundered it. And then after they plundered it, they destroyed it. Now, why did they destroy it? I'm just going to throw it out here in a nutshell. They destroyed it. Because Israel wasn't following God's will. Just in a nutshell, it was destroyed because previously Israel began to do some horrendous things as children of God. And they lost the place where God's presence dwelt. They lost the blessing. They lost the place that represented God and his attributes and his love for his people. They represented the place to where uh, there was a bridge between them and God. They messed it all up and it was destroyed. Now, they was in captivity uh, for quite a few decades. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have a place of worship. They was in a, a Babylonian captivity, but then they received favor. During the time of Nehemiah, Ezra, and the governor Zerubbabel, uh, there became an opportunity to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah helped start that and to rebuild the temple. So they was able to rebuild the temple uh, underneath King Darius the Great, and you see that in Ezra chapter 5. But to be honest, it wasn't the same. You kind of see it there, the lower, lower right picture. It wasn't as lavished. It wasn't as uh, majestic as Solomon's temple. But when you study it, when you, when you study, it, study it out, and you, and, and you jump into it, what you also find, which is the worst case scenario, is it did not have the same Shekinah or the same power of God's presence that Solomon's temple had. Damage had already, had already been done. Now that temple lasted for 585 years, but guess what? It was destroyed again. It was destroyed uh, in 70 AD by the Roman Empire and it was destroyed because of a retaliation from the Romans because of an ongoing Jewish revolt. So the Romans came in 70 years after Christ and they destroyed uh, the second temple. 
Now, you, you, in the video, you, 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 saw, uh, you saw the Temple Mount today, and that is not a Jewish temple. That is a Muslim mosque. Israel doesn't have a temple today, but there is a belief that a third one is coming, and that's involved in, 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 in prophecy. So that's basically the foundation of the temple, where, 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 the, where the temple uh, came from, how God started it, God's plans for it. <clears throat> now, next week, we're going to jump inside the temple and we're going to look at the furnishings and how those furnishings was used and what they represent for us today because we won't be able to dive into everything inside the temple, but we would definitely cover uh, the main furnishings and, and how, they were, how they was used and how they were used in worship and what they mean for us uh, today. So that's what I have for you tonight, the beginning of, of, of the temple. If you would, bow your head, close your eyes, and I'll end this in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your teaching. I ask that this just shed some light on some uh, biblical history uh, that is very significant uh, and, and, and very important. We honor you. We love you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope God spoke to you personally through this message and continues to encourage you throughout the coming weeks.